whiskey on diesel boats, they call us bubblehead. Our blood is laced with diesel smoke for sailors to the end. Our diesels wind through the salty brine until we take her deep. Welcome back, everybody, to the Parakeets Podcast. I am your host, Saul Thompson. You can find me on Instagram at Saul Thompson. I'm joined this week by my lovely co-host, I'm Michael Smith. You can find me on Instagram at, at underscore Smithstagram. And without further ado, John is unfortunately able to join or unable, pardon me, to join us today. But we are joined by a wonderful guest, an OG in the streetwear game. He's been named one of the most influential people in streetwear. His brand has been cited as one of the most influential streetwear brands of all time. He himself is a writer, definitely an innovator in the space, and again, an OG within the world of streetwear. It's none other than Bobby Hundreds of the Hundreds. How are you, Bobby? I'm good. Thank you, guys. Super grateful to be here, and thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Yeah, of course. It was super exciting. I I don't know initially when I messaged you. I was like, oh, let's try and get Bobby Hundreds on the podcast. And shockingly, like, conversation went super well. Um, yeah. I believe there was a hiccup a little bit last year, but I, you know kind of went back and forth a little bit um, with your assistant and lined it up and super yeah. easy. Persistence beats resistance, especially <laughs> with nailing me down for an interview. I'm always open and willing for interviews, but it's mainly about scheduling because I've said, I say yes to so many. And then, <laughs> yeah. um, and then sometimes I feel like I'm spreading myself a little thin, uh, but at the same time, I'm, I'm like more than willing to like, give my opinions on things you know it's it's free <laughs> yeah absolutely uh we'll get things started because bobby you don't have too much time we shouldn't beat around the bush too much we're going to start with the fit check um something we do on every episode uh michael you want to lead us off show us how it's done <laughs> sure uh today i am wearing a rick hoodie uh i have a rick turtleneck underneath it uh rick sweatpants and crops crocs not Crocs, Crocs. So nice. the usual Michael outfit. But which Crocs? Can I see? Yeah, they're uh, just black Crocs, but they have Shrek ears. Sick. <laughs> really good. I used to have uh, truck nuts on the back of them, but they're way too annoying to like wear around. So these are the house shoes. Wait, why aren't the truck nuts, truck nuts comfortable? Uh, well, I, I don't like having my shoes in sport mode. Uh, so very fair. if you... If you have them like regular, then it's just like the truck nuts hanging in front and they just like, they're like all over the place. When you take a step, it's loud and they like get tangled and stuff. Just, just not, not the way to do it. Are I could they take more brass? have truck nuts though. No, they're like, they're like 3D printed. I could, okay. there's probably one of them sitting around here. I ordered a bunch. I was going to say, that's not an official Crocs gibbet, is it? <laughs> Absolutely not. No. I, I don't think I don't the Shrek ears that. are official either. Yeah. Um, oh, those Shrek ears aren't uh, I don't know. My my girlfriend ordered, she has the like really elaborate Balenciaga Crocs, and she yeah. ordered the Shrek ears because it's like, it makes them look so bad. Yeah. Um, and she, <laughs> they're like pink, and they had these like bright green ears coming off of them. Um and then when she got bored of them, I put them on my like house shoes. Um, but I don't think it's, I don't think the Shrocks are official, unfortunately. The Shrocks. I feel like you guys can do an entire episode on Crocs and yeah. the, the phenomenon around them. I'm glad we they're should interview back. Mr. They're Croc. great shoes. <laughs> they yeah. are. I mean, they're just, yeah. And they're so irreverent and self-effacing when you wear them. It's, 
just takes the piss out of everything. I, I, um, I'm also just fascinated with Crocs as a brand and as a company because they've somehow maintained relevance in the all time, like across all swaths of subcultures and culture for the mm-hmm. last. What I mean, when did you say this? Be like 2018, 17? Like I feel like it's been like four or five years now that it's been yeah. kind of more or less like cool or you know, f- passing to be able to wear Crocs with like a Rick hoodie, Rick hoodie or like, you know, some kind of <laughs> the, streetwear. The, the character arc that Crocs have gone, I think we've talked about this on the pod more than once. Because okay. okay. Crocs are, I'm always wearing Crocs it, when I'm at home. The character arc they've gone through is crazy from being like this like pariah, this like hated shoe that everyone made fun of. And it was like- I had to beg it- my mom to buy me a pair because I could wear them to swimming. <laughs> I could wear them on the deck. It was like- you can either wear Crocs or you can go barefoot. It's like, I don't want to get warts. I'll wear Crocs. Oh, man. <laughs> don't look at me. Oh, like, yeah. And now they're doing like collabs. With they're, beams. They're like everywhere. Yeah. There's a beams Croc. Yeah, they're like That's the cargo cool. Crocs. They have um cargo pockets oh, on yeah, the top. Yeah, I have yeah those, those ones are really good. <laughs> yeah, um, those ones are really good. The fingerprint ones that I keep seeing everywhere. Oh, Soleil Bembury. Yeah. 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 The Slay, so he wants a very popular. He dropped it the white pair again today in Paris. Um, and I, I'm I'm thinking about this because in one of my group chats, there are people who are not that uh up on fashion and whatnot, and there are some people who are. And my team is currently in Paris right now for Fashion Week, and they were all with Soleil here earlier, and they had and someone in our group chat said, What is the deal with these crocs? Number one, they look like their Crocs are just biting Yeezy. And because he didn't really know. Um, so I can't really fault him for this. He said, Cro- what are these Crocs? I guess Crocs is now biting Yeezy. And how are people still wearing, still wearing these things are ugly. And then in the chat, like my partner Ben was in the chat and Ben was just like, I'm, I'm with Slahi right now. I literally just got a pair of those. <laughs> and then I was like, that pair, that design has been around for a few years. But to, to Crocs defense, the phone runners were inspired by what Crocs were doing. I feel like Crocs was the beginning of this type of footwear and making it accept- acceptable to wear these gardening style cro- uh, clogs, more or less, um, with your everyday outfits or just to schlep around the house. And then the pandemic actually, I think, also catalyzed much of the normalizing around that shoe. Oh, yeah. Um, but I think that like, so there's, it's just such a fascinating thing. We worked, I designed a Crocs two years ago that Footwear News um, called the the shoe of the year. And it was a Hidden Valley Ranch collaboration. Oh, I do remember those. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that you? That was me. But That's we did, crazy. You know, they initially, Crocs came to us to do it as a three-way collab. And I was just like, I think it's better if my name isn't attached to this, but I'll just guest design it. And then yeah. that Crocs ended up being very popular. Oh know? yeah, they're they're like reselling for quite a bit right now, right? Yeah, yeah. I I don't know how much they resell for, but um, I just thought it was like a funny thing to do, and then uh, it just ended up doing really well. But like that's, <laughs> I don't know. I'm like we could talk all day about this. I know we're not here to do that, but um, <laughs> yeah. Before we get too far away from it, why don't you give us a fit check? I'll round us out, and then we'll get into some questions. 
Yeah, sure. Um, I wasn't even thinking I should have worn something probably a little bit more special, but I mean, this is still special. This, this is, is our gotcha uh, moment. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is it. I'm like, you got me. I'm just, I'm, I'm probably always wearing one of our shirts or a band shirt. So this is by the hundreds. Um, I think this is a part of our spring collection that's coming out now uh, with uh, an artist contribution from Anthony Padilla, who's a really remarkable young artist. We like working with a lot of emerging artists. I'm wearing um, just brown dickies, our socks and uh, shoes today. I was wearing Stray Rats New Balance, the uh, the first ones. When you say Anthony Padilla, is he the he was one of the co-creators of Smosh, right? I think a different one. I think. This is oh, a different OK. Person. Yeah, that would but, be yeah. crazy. I was going to say yeah, that no. was. Yeah, yeah no, no. I'm sure there are a few Anthony Padillas out there in the world. Okay. Uh, you know, this I think this is a different one. i'll round this out quickly uh i'm not wearing shoes i was wearing a pair of slippers but i don't know where i left them i usually take them off um those are my house shoes but i went and took a shower um earlier today um i'm wearing a pair of um studio dartison matcha selvage denim um i blew out the crotch got it repaired now they're getting back to getting worn every day um, nice. I'm wearing a really old, actually reigning champ shirt that I got wow. in 2016. Wow. Uh, NBA all-star game. I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I need this shirt. Yeah. Um, and it's been like through hell and back with me. We have like old family photos from me in high school and I'm still wearing that shirt. Um, uh, it's held up great. I don't know. Shout out reigning champ for good quality blanks. And then. I'm wearing a cardigan that I made with a um, very nice woman on Instagram. Her at is rib for your pleasure. Um, it's like my house cardigan, but it has a, a water tower on the back. Um, oh, it's from a photo series that I really like by two photographers called or named Hilla and Burned Besher. Sweet. Lots of storytelling in the cardigan. Oh, well, yeah. You pulled out a real special one. Yeah. Is that screen printed on the back or is it? No, it's knitted in. So yeah, this was like, so really long story. Michael's heard more about this. I was broke, like broke, broke um, in December and couldn't afford to turn the heat on in my apartment. Yeah. Um, And so there's it knitted in. If you could sort of see that. That's beautiful. Um, But was freezing cold and couldn't wear anything but a puffer jacket around the apartment. But now it's at like a serviceable, like 68. Um, yeah, I got my money up, so <laughs> I can wear a cardigan around the apartment. Be be at an acceptable. That's luxury. Oh yeah, I'm living large. You, <laughs> you got the you the made it. <laughs> yeah, that's like true status signaling. You're like, I don't have to wear a puffer inside the house anymore. Yeah. Literally, Ugh, no more no more ice sandwiches for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's get into some of the questions that we've written because I mean, sure. you're a storied figure within the the streetwear community. You got to pick your brain while we have you. Sure. Um, so I guess maybe not historically, but what have you been up to recently? Like any fun new projects? You mentioned your team is at uh, Paris Fashion Week right now. Yeah, uh, you're working on a few upcoming T-shirts with upcoming artists. You know, yeah. what's in the pipeline for you? Well, this is our 20th year of the hundreds. So this year is going to be very, very interesting. Talk about storied. Uh, It's going to be a really amazing opportunity for us to reflect and also remind people of our own culture that we've established and built over the last couple decades. And then also what's happened in larger streetwear culture and in the industry and the marketplace over the last um, years. So 
I think that's going to be really fun. Uh, much of that storytelling, obviously, there's a lot of cool collaborations coming in and events and parties, and we'll do some pop-up shops and do some international stuff. And I think that'll be really fun. Um, I have another book coming out in March or in May. Uh, it's called NFTs Are a Scam, and it's chronicling the last two years of what's happened with what we're now calling digital collectibles and the metaverse and blockchain ownership and, you know, like all the ridiculous parts and the scammy parts of it all the way down to like what is actually functional and tech forward. And and then especially more from the subculture and also very culty side of mm-hmm. crypto and really more of an anthropological study of why we, uh, why one group of people were so drawn to this over the last uh, 24 months and also why it seemed to resonate in culture for a time and why it doesn't have the same resonance as it may have for some of those people um, two years later. So it's just like a series of essays. I went pretty deep in being a part of that community and trying to understand what was happening. And I came out of it with a document of saying like, here are two years of like a really interesting time in history what does it say about us as a as a people? What does it say about us as far as collectibles go? Um, mm-hmm. There's a, speaking of fashion. There's some interesting fashion stuff I get into in there as well. Streetwear, digital fashion. What is metaverse fashion? Is this real? Is it meaningful? And then um, what else? I have so much. I just launched my Substack uh, yesterday, and so please oh, subscribe. Nice. Um, it's just under Bobby Hundreds, but the title of the Substack is called Monologue. It's continuation of a blog that I've been running for like several years. I, I didn't really promote. It was kind of just more for me. Um, but this is a weekly, um, probably even semi-weekly uh, deal, uh, newsletter that will be coming directly to your inbox and just kind of deep diving on thoughts I have around culture and everything, par- parenting to politics, to religion, to fashion, streetwear. Um, I'm in a little bit of a different season of my life now that's not all consumed by sneakers and streetwear and skateboarding and music. (laughs) Um, I'm 42 years old. I'm turning 43 this year. Like I have older children. So it's just like me at this point in time. And it's a way for me to stay engaged with my community just because Mm -hmm. social has obviously declined quite a bit and it's a little bit murkier to find connection out there. So this is a a direct inroad to, to me and my world. Cool. Yeah. Uh, What was, I mean, maybe speaking a little bit about the conception of the hundreds, I know it started in, I guess, 2003, but what was the impetus behind that? Like what really drove you to begin this, you know, streetwear wasn't a thing back in 2003. What drove you to start it? It's a really good question. And the further I get away from it, it seems wilder and wackier (laughs) than ever. Like I can't, I was at a dinner last night with some really impressive founders, people who've built businesses there was a guy sitting across the table from me named Ted, who I've known for 20 years. We got our start at the same time. He had a brand called Poketto, and it's um, kind of like a house goods, stationary company, kind of cutesy stuff. And when we started the hundreds, our very first trade show that we did, and it wasn't very cool to do trade shows back then because you have to remember streetwear at that time was meant to be so underground and tucked away that wholesaling it was kind of this barbed territory you didn't want to get into diluting your brand by selling it to other stores and so supreme's Mm -hmm. like 
an A plus example of this, right? Like Supreme was all about just going direct through their own retail channels. And then they had their Japanese distributor. Um, same with a brand like A Life, who we really admired and looked up to when we were starting. A Life, you know, you can only buy within their stores. And so when the hundreds started, you know, this was a response to the streetwear that we had kind of been indoctrinated by and we were fans of, we wanted to open the streetwear conversation up to as many people as possible because I felt like the the culture wasn't accessible to people unless they were of a certain, you know, economic bracket or if they mm. were geographically advantaged, meaning they mm. were in a city like L.A. or they live near Harajuku or they were down in, you know, Soho and LES in New York. Like you had to be in a certain region of the world to access this. And we were coming up on the dawn of early internet. And for the first time, we were, you know, we were democratizing culture. We're also look, looking and considering young people who've never quite been spoken to before or been represented by and we were like, we should be able to sell to young people like that. Again, before e-com, before online shops, how can we enter their neighborhoods? And so wholesaling was an attractive means to get our product into other kinds of young people. And mm -hmm. so we did a trade show. It was called Magic. Um, it was a big fashion trade show, but they had a small corner called a High Five Campground. And there were about 20, 15 to 20 startup brands where we paid about $500 to $700 for a table for three days in Vegas. Um, and all they gave us was a rack. And so streetwear, as you know it today, didn't exist, right? We didn't even call it streetwear at the time. We called brands like these, like independent artist-based, you know, t-shirts or something like that. And so um, we were sit situated in this trade show next to a brand like Pochetto, next to um, kind of like a Spencer's Gifts kind of jokey, gimmicky t-shirt brand. <laughs> like all of us were just lumped together, right? Mm -hmm. And then over the years, we ended up each building our own silos. And then we had our own trade shows for streetwear. And then Pochetto had own trade their own trade shows for what they're doing. So I'm sitting across from this guy last night. And he's actually, his, his company was acquired back in July. And he's just like, dude, do you remember when we started and like how far we came? And so to take this story long, like take the long route back to your question, um, you know, it's just crazy because we're sitting there thinking about having been entrepreneurs when we were in our early 20s and how insane it was where it was entirely passion filled and passion led. You know, we had no business background. We had no idea what we were doing. We were just working around their clock, imagining something, coming up with it out of thin air and believing that this thing could really be something substantive, not saying that this was going to become global fashion. Like there was never a belief or an understanding that sneakers and streetwear were going to be sold as like a worldwide fashion trend like that just mm -hmm. never entered my mind. All it was was, can I continue doing this brand tomorrow and the next day so that I can survive just to pay the rent and then I'll be happy. Like that's as free as I've ever felt. Right. I didn't look at it like oh, I'm going to sell this company for hundred million dollars one day. Cause there was no roadmap for that. There was no mm -hmm. brands that came up that looked like ours that had sold for a hundred million dollars or had made like Supreme kind of money. As you know it today, Supreme was just a skate shop. Right. And so the, you know, those were our role models and we're like, yeah, we just want to have a shop. Like 
that's the top again, I guess. Like that's <laughs> as good as it gets, you know. But yeah. now everyone starting a brand is like, I want to be, you know, the next Balenciaga. I want to be the next, you know, like whatever, um, you know, acquired by carrying or whatever your goal is as a designer. Uh, it was never our intention. Our our intention was we just love making art and making cool design and product. And as long as enough people are buying it to where we can pay our rent, then we win. And I don't think we've ever let go of that ideal. Was there like a, a, a tipping point where you realized that like things were sort of growing beyond this, like <laughs> just trying to get a store thing? Like you're like, oh, wow, we can just we can put this everywhere. Yeah, there was a very specific moment. Um, actually, bef- so this is speaking of the store. We had made a, a sweatshirt and fans of the hundreds and early street were remember this moment. Um, all over print was kind of becoming in vogue, right? And all over print was popular for a couple of reasons. Number one, because of Bape and what they're doing with Bape camo and full zip uh, hoodies. And number two, for most of us who were starting in streetwear and had these, this first generation of these early streetwear brands, we didn't know how to make a garment like that. Because all we were doing really was we weren't necessarily making fashion. We were just essentially graphic designers putting our images on T-shirts, which are two kind of separate things. But to make an all over printed hooded sweatshirt, it actually involved uh, knowing how to do like, you know, going accessing belt printing or like putting a garment together and like understanding paneling and how things lined up along the seams and all that. So that seemed to be like an inflection point or a graduation of, oh, if you can make that, then your brand is really going to set stand apart from all these other t-shirt labels. Like you're actually making cut and sew at that point. And so that was kind of like the benchmark, like who can make a really good all over printed hoodie. And we <laughs> did one called the Paisley hoodie and we produced about a hundred of these things. And um, we didn't have social media at the time, but I had my blog. And every day I would be broadcasting live from Fairfax in the sense that I would go outside, take photos of what was happening on our street and like in front of our office, which was essentially our clubhouse. And I was taking pictures of people wearing our hoodie out front. You know, these people ended up building a brand brands of their own, like Mega, who started Black Scale. Uh, Nick Terche was out there, who has Diamond, and some other like people who were very formative in early streetwear. So I take photos of all the homies wearing the Paisley hoodie. I go back inside. I upload it immediately to the blog, and people around the world start seeing this. And I say, "Hey, these are going to drop online um, at midnight or something like that." And this was in two thousand five or two thousand six. Um, as you can guess, everything sold out right away and we weren't even prepared for what was to happen. Like we didn't have Shopify back then. It was just a PayPal cart that I had like, kind of like rigged myself, like <laughs> basic HTML and Dreamweaver code and, um, turned my phone off. Cause it was like three in the morning. By the time I set it all up, uh, I didn't want to be bothered. I didn't want to be woken up in the morning. And all of a sudden, a few hours later, I just hear this banging on my door. It's my girlfriend and she was on her way to work. And Ben had been blowing up her phone. And Ben was just like, hey, go wake Bobby up. You know, he has to take the website down. We've oversold by like whatever, a thousand percent. Because back then with PayPal, you couldn't even set like a limit of like inventory. It was just like, if you want to pay us for these hoodies, just drop the money in this bucket. And people were just (laughs) like dropping all kinds of money in the bucket 
And I call Ben. I'm like, what the hell's going on? He's just like, dude, take the page down. Oh my God. Like we're never going to be able to fulfill these orders. We only made a hundred of these hoodies. People have ordered thousands. It was a great problem to have. And I was like, holy shit. And we take the website down, you know, we go to the office and we're just staring at each other, just flabbergasted, you know? And that was the moment where we looked at them. And we're like, first of all, we made, I think something like, you know, I don't remember the exact number, but like a couple hundred thousand dollars, maybe something like that. I don't even really remember. And we were like, let's put all all the money into building a store right here. Like that's all we've ever wanted in this office. Like in this, yes, in this office, it's only 400 square feet. It's closet, but everybody knows we're here. I'm blogging from here every day. People have already been coming around from around the world. They're like, oh, this is where it's happening. This is the epicenter of streetwear. Yes. And so we set up the hundreds flagship store there. And so I think that was a real inflection point. There are other moments where there were significant celebrities that wore our, our product or wore the hundreds on stage. And that was kind of cool, you know, like a Justin Bieber or something, you know, someone like it, rad, like they they put us on Instagram. Um, but nothing was as meaningful as that. Like, I think that was the moment where we were like, oh, wow, like we have demand, we have a community that really cares for the product. And we're going to be doing this for a very long time. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, fun, fun times. <laughs> so what was it like, you know, having this sort of big inflection moment with the hoodie? What was it like seeing the hundreds sort of blow up and become like a big part of streetwear? And, you know, like I have memories, I'm fairly certain, like of Mac Miller wearing a hundreds hoodie in like 2013. I was like, yeah. what is that? Like, Mom, take me to the mall. Like, I want to go yeah. like Spencer's Gifts or like Zoomies or whatever yeah. store had it. Like, I want to yeah. see where those shirts are being sold. Yeah. Like, what, was, what that? was that? Yeah. What was that like? Like, you know, with streetwear being as big as it is now, right? And being yeah. this sort of everybody knows what it is. There's TV shows about it. There's magazines about it. You know, everybody yeah. knows what it is. High fashion brands are sort of, you know, now more streetwear. Um than not, I mean, with some exceptions, obviously, but sure, yeah. you know, what was it like to really like be behind some of that initial push, you know, like OG Supreme Bape, things like that? Yeah. Um, God, it's hard for me to say because obviously one person was not responsible for forging streetwear as we know it today. Mm -hmm. Um, just like, you know, it's funny because a lot of people also, they, they're trying to find the next Virgil, and they're like, who's going to be the next individual who essentially outlines our future of what streetwear is and can be? And I'm like, well, if you look in the past, it was never one person. It was a confluence of events, confluence of different people coming together and doing their own things. And this all like wove their stories into this tapestry of what streetwear became, right? It's like no one's singular point of view, no one's singular story. And that was one of the things that really struck me with streetwear was that there was never a set definition on what this was or who mm -hmm. started it or what it even embodies. If you ask the average person, if, I, if we had this conversation right now, what is streetwear and who's streetwear and who's responsible for it? We have three completely different answers. And I think that's what makes streetwear streetwear. Like that's probably the only thing we can all agree on with streetwear <laughs> is that it's so, uh, it's, it's so fragmented and it's just, um, it's, you know, there's, there's just so much, there's so much story and there's so many different opinions involved and it's many people's stories. Um, and so I can only speak from my point of view, watching it and seeing what had happened. 
uh, first of all, I, it almost feels very out of body experience. Like it, it was kind of now when I'm looking back on it, it was like watching someone else, you know, living through that and experiencing, we had no idea again, that it would become what it became. And we did it because of true love. It was a really blinding and wild love for this thing called streetwear that doesn't make any sense. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. And if you had reverse engineered this thing to, oh, let's try to replicate or duplicate what we had done back then with young people today, you would never be able to because there's too much of a roadmap. There's too much that's happened in a track record of how things are supposed to go. And so um, the reason why it was so powerful, I think, is because we were relying solely on the power of imagination, right? It was purely fantasy of like, let's just imagine it and let's just make it happen. There's no one, there's been no precedent for this thing before. No one's ever tried to do it this way. So let's try. It's pure creativity. And so it was really beautiful in that sense. I think that's what attracted so many young people to it was because they were like, I can do it too. You know, like watching Bobby Hundreds and Ben Hundreds, they're just a couple of guys. They're really not great designers. They're not necessarily the best business people, but they really care about this thing and they love what they're doing. Like you can tell that we have such a passion for this thing called streetwear. It's like a, it's a really true love. And so young people saw that and they're like, that's all it requires. I can do it too. And everyone got in and added their voice to the conversation. And so I think um, it's just, you know, remarkable. I don't think we'll ever see anything like it ever again. And while it was happening, it didn't look like anything that we think about it now, right? It's really easy in hindsight to look at streetwear and see like, oh, this like really insane, complicated and complex culture that formed. But when you're in the midst of it, it just looks like you're answering emails, you know, you're sleepless after going to a trade show. Um, you know, a store turned on your order, or like your samples came back defective and, you know, you're, <laughs> you're asked out of like a collection, like that's lo- what it looks like in the middle of it. Right. And maybe 10 to 15 to 20 years from now, when I look back on this interview, I'll be like, oh, I had no idea how I was involved in another movement that was starting. Um, at the time, you're just doing what you want to do. You're just doing the work. I think that's all we're called to do as designers is just do the work and be proud of the work that you put out. And hopefully one day it you, you'll look back on it and it'll really feel like it had a moment of meaning and impact in culture. And, and I'm proud to say that I think we had a little bit to do with that. So before I forget, um, we have a Discord, which we have lovingly dubbed the happiest place in fashion. Um, Bobby, we ask our guests on every guest episode to give us a word, a phrase, something that people can DM to us at Pair of Kings Pod. Um, for access, it's a very low barrier to entry. You literally just have to listen to one episode. But um, if people would like to join our Discord, Bobby, what should they message us over on Instagram? Oh, um, I don't know. Uh, I'm so bad with stuff like this. It's just <laughs> that bad. <laughs> like I can talk about anything, but when it's like, give me one word, yeah, I'm you... like, a word? <laughs> I can't think of a word. <laughs> Um, how about word W O R D perfect word. That'll do. Yeah. So if you'd like to join the discord message, just word at pair of Kings pod, um, we'll get back to you as soon as possible. I guess another question for me is, do you see yourself as a bit of a like streetwear purist, right? Like, is there something that you see that you're like, Oh, you know, I don't like that. Whether it be, you know, Balenciaga Crocs or 
$800 Gucci t-shirts, whatever it may be, right? <laughs> yeah. you, uh, you, you must have some sort of opinion on what streetwear is and what it isn't. Um, and do you see things today yeah. that are really sort of exciting for that definition or things today that you're like, how are we letting this slide? Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. You know, I would be lying if I didn't say I had like a heavy opinion. It, to me, all great design begins with an opinion. And usually how I express how I feel about what's happening in the culture and industries by the things that I'm making. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I might not be outright and forthright about, you know, talking shit on a brand, but <laughs> you can tell the way that I'm designing is that I'm not a fan of what they're doing. Right. And I think that's like something really like a powerful tool that designers wield is that we don't have to use our words and write these sub tweets all the time or like long blog <laughs> entries or even answer podcasts and, you know, use words, we can also shape the course of a movement through design, right? And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, there's always things. Like, I think uh, my heart is still very much set on that era of streetwear that we started out in. It felt very pure and honest. And um, again, there was like a real storytelling that was going on. The reselling dynamic and economy wasn't as much of a factor it's always been a factor of course but it wasn't as much of a factor because it wasn't as easy to do so mm -hmm. um, that didn't drive the conversation as much you know if we're just talking about street uh, sneakers like you weren't the clout didn't come from like having an expensive pair of sneakers that you flipped clout came from like having an expensive pair of sneakers that you wore because wearing them you were saying like i don't need the 500 like I can wear these things. And that was like such a mo much more impressive flex than someone saying like, oh, I got them on the sneakers app. It's just like, <laughs> that's like a digital J that's an NFT, you know, like you have a digital <laughs> asset. Like I want to see you actually wearing these things, you know, like then you really oh, are, yeah. rich, you know, like that's a, that's so I, there's back then, look, we bought, we wore streetwear back then because nobody wore it. That was <laughs> right. And today people wear streetwear because everyone wears it. And not it's you can't really judge one or the other. It's just two different ways of looking at the same problem and what it means to, you know, have scarcity involved in 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 dynamic of, of purchasing and consumer dynamics and also like what community looks like. For us back then, we wore streetwear because nobody wore it, meaning that we were really drawn to the fringe. Most of us felt counted out of the larger mainstream conversation. We weren't being spoken to by Gap or Nike or some of the bigger corporations. And so we were like, look, I don't necessarily, I'm not part of the popular kids at school. I'm not the cool kid. I'm not the good looking jock. I'm not any of that. Uh, but I'm really interested in these artist led brands by these young entrepreneurs, right? Guys like Russ, Russ Karablin from Sir or Jay Money, uh, Jamie Story, or, you know, even the original A-Life crew. Like these guys we really looked to because they were kind of on the outskirts and the fringe of culture, right? They weren't in the mainstream culture. They weren't like boy bands and MTV. They were the ones that were outside kind of dictating the trends from the outside or from the underground. I think that was so much more appealing for someone like me. And so mm -hmm. we wanted to wear streetwear because that was a community of square pegs of people who didn't feel like they didn't necessarily belonged anywhere. And we found solace in each other. And nowadays when you're buying streetwear, you're buying it because you really want to fit in because you don't want to be left out. It's more of a FOMO driven culture of like, I want to get in. I want to be a part of that thing. Whereas mm -hmm. before we were like, I'm trying to lead this thing. 
right? Like, I don't want to be a part. I want to be on the outside of it. I don't want to, this is like so mainstream, it's whack. And now people are like, well, don't leave me out. Like, what what music are you listening to? Like, I want to I hear, what is that? Like, I don't want to be excluded. Um, some point there was a shift, probably social media driven as to why young people think like this. But because I grew up in a generation where we were just more like, we like being weird and we want, we prefer to be weird. Um, I like that style of street or more than like, let's uh, just wear what every single other person is wearing. <laughs> yeah. We've like, talked it's, about it's cool to be a popular loner. Yeah. We, we've talked oh. about this before where like counterculture becomes culture and then like new counterculture has to like whatever used to be culture oh, now becomes counterculture. There's that like back and forth. Um, yeah. Do you think there's like a current like. I guess you've said that, you you know, it's, it's like one of those movements you might not be aware you're currently in, but like, do you think there's a current thing that's like the thing people are doing because no one is doing it? I mean, I've definitely seen a decline in the interest of classical streetwear, especially in like a post-Virgil world. I think mm-hmm. there is an active disinterest and disengagement from participating in a lot of the reseller economy of streetwear and sneakers. We're already seeing that across the board, just, you know, the prices on StockX or StockX in general, not as popular as it may have been during the pandemic. And um, even high fashion is starting to disengage with a lot of the streetwear language over the last couple of years. So I think there's already a little bit of a response and a backlash and a movement against. Um, To me, that's always better for streetwear and for subcultures. It's healthier. Um, things get a little bit confusing and lost in translation when it's all just about making a ton of money and being the most popular thing. Again, I think it's most on brand for streetwear to not be on the main stage all mm-hmm. the time. We're kind of on the side stage. And in, in fact, we're not even invited to the music festival, you know? And so I think that's kind of a trend that's going on right now. I think, um, young people and i'm not a young person i'm just surrounded by a lot of young people so i'm just only looking from their filters um i think young people are feeling very much numbed or desensitized to brand and product and um it might not mean as much to them as it did to someone like me growing up in the 90s and the 2000s where brand was everything you know and that really um, classified who you were in the pecking order, you know, which brands you were associated by. Um, it just seems it's, it's not like a norm core thing. I just think young people are like, cool. Like everyone has Supreme, not like everyone wears Susie sick, like great. Uh, so what's the (laughs) next thing that is going to differentiate me from the next person? Is it going to be, uh, my ideas? Is it going to be the things that I talk about? on my social channels? Is it going to be the fact that I stay away from social? Is it how I perform in sports? I don't know, but I don't think they're leaving it just to the brands anymore to speak for them. I think they're kind of speaking for themselves. It's a little abstract, but I think it's kind of the general sentiment. It just doesn't, you know, I, every generation I'm always around speaking at schools, you know, like there's always young people around the shop or whatever. And I always ask them like, what are you into? What are you into? What are you into? And this is the first generation where I'm like, what brands are you into? And they're like, oh, who cares? Who cares? You know, they're like, I have some cool shoes on, but like, honestly, who gives a shit? And I'm like, yeah, like really, who gives a shit? You know? And so (laughs) their, their minds are on. And I think it's just, everyone has access to cool stuff. Everything you're wearing is cool in their own way. So it's like, okay, we've established 
everybody's cool now. So like, what makes us different? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I still think that young kids today are very obsessed with brands. I still think that's why like the rep market and buying fake clothes is so popular at the moment because you want to sort of be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that among people like above the age and I, you know, I say this hopefully above the age of like 24, 25 are starting to become a little bit less like enchanted with, oh, I'm just wearing like X brand. Therefore, it must be cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's just easy. I think because there's less resistance or a lower barrier to get to these things. And I I keep bringing up these examples of A-Life just because it's like a golden moment. But back then it wasn't about money as far as like what was um, keeping like someone cool versus uncool. Uh, Mm -hmm. Nowadays, a lot of it has to do with money. It's like, can you afford that, uh, you know, by buying it off of secondary or accessing? But back then it was more like, did you do the work? Like, yeah. did you go on the right forum to talk to the right person <laughs> sent you to the right store and you had to walk there? And, you know, if it was in New York, you had to like get a plane. Like I had to save up for a, a $200 uh, Priceline ticket to fly on a red eye to New York to go to a life to buy a, a $30 shirt and then bring that home. And then that was <laughs> doing the work like you earned it. But it wasn't like you paid like $6,000 for this thing. You were just like, look, like I have a full experience and a story out of this product. And it means a lot to me. Like, I don't want to sell it to anyone else. I want to wear it. And so um, I think maybe that just, look, the internet was good and bad. And, you know, depending on how you look at it for different things. But I think it also reshaped a lot of that relationship. For sure. So we've got one more question. We've asked it of every single pair of Kings guest, um, old and new. And it's sort of our our coup de gras. It's our way of bringing you into the fold as a pair of King's guest. Um, we've had people laugh. We've had people cry. Uh, <laughs> we've had people fly into, you know, unburdened rage. So we'll we'll see how you handle it. But without further ado, Bobby of Bobby, or sorry, Bobby of the hundreds, aka Bobby hundreds. If you had one year to eat a wooden door, hinges and doorknob included, do you think you could do so? And if you could, how? Hinges and door hinges and like all the hardware included. Yeah. Yes. Nails. What? Why? What is my incentive for doing this? <laughs> Somebody hands you a door to see if you could. Uh, there, there is no reason. Somebody just comes over and places the door in front it of says, you. You got a year you to this in the year. Correct. But I have to. Like he's holding a gun to my head. You no, don't no, no, have no. to. But do you think okay. you could? I, I definitely could not. I would definitely okay, could cool. I, I, like there's straight up. There's no part of me that believes that I could do this without causing serious bodily injury to myself. But more than anything, I think I would lose interest after 20 minutes of mm. trying to solve this logic puzzle. <laughs> and then I'd be like, I have such bad ADHD. I would just look at this thing and be like, I don't, I can't figure it out. I'm not going to play. And that's just how yeah. I've been with everything my whole life if i can't go into it and win i have very little interest which is a terrible (laughs) attitude it's very poor sportsmanship but if i can't come in and win i don't want to play like it's just not worth my time so i'm not going to win that game (laughs) i think this is a really good litmus test because some people are like off the bat like yes like obviously (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) like and then they have to yeah like duh i could eat a door and then they have to like I think I think I was I was that. Uh, Look, if, if I was passionate about eating a door, I would do it because I believe passion trumps all, and you can find it where there's a will, there's a way. I'm not passionate about the door eating. Uh, consider <laughs> that uh, 
no one else is eating a door right now. Right. It's true. Uh, you could be the pioneer. So, <laughs> pioneering. This is the new streetwear. There we go. Eating doors. Um, <laughs> sort of a. Are, is that a bunch of Kit Kat clocks on the wall yes. behind you? Yeah. In like different colors. Yeah. That's crazy. The, I did. Go ahead. I didn't even. I like only ever seen like the the standard one and like the Christmas one. Yeah, the, the the standard one. So I'm a Back to the Future fan. And at the opening of Back to the Future, the original film in Doc Brown's garage studio, he has a collection of Kit Kat clocks. So I've always been obsessed with mm-hmm. them. And so um, almost every year we do a collaboration with the hundreds and Kit Kat clock. We're the first oh, ones. Oh, to- shit, really? Yeah. We approached them like six years ago and they're still the same. They're like a hundred year old company still made by yeah. the same family somewhere in like, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but I want to say in like Pennsylvania or something like that. And uh, we reached out to them and said, hey, uh, we run a brand in L.A. I know this sounds crazy, but we want to start doing, you know, a, an annual collaborative Kit Kat clock with you. And they were like, they had no interest. It took them like two years you know, for us to like wear them down. They're like, why would we do this? What do we get out of it? And I'm like, they're like, we, are we they're like, are we making a lot of money? I'm like, oh, no, no, there's not a lot of money everywhere. <laughs> and they're just like why are we doing this again? I'm like, cause it's cool. <laughs> and they're just like, okay. And finally they agreed. To do it. <laughs> and now I think they start, they're doing them with like other brands and whatnot, but um, mm. that's just, oh, that's like, cool. That's a personal one for me. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Jesus. Wow. I, uh, I just looked up the Kit Kat clock hundreds. The leopard print one is going for like $600. Is it really? <laughs> it's oh, not worth God. that much. If this if this eBay <laughs> listing is to be taken, this is not a sold listing. This is a asking price. But like, yeah, I, you know, I think people list anything for any price. But uh, yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Who knows? I mean, just they're trust me, whoever's considering buying that they're not worth that much. We're making another <laughs> one this year. Not a leopard print one, but um, there's another one coming this year. But that's they're they're really fun right. to have. They're really yeah. Fun. I love I, that you I, recognize that because most people don't know what that is. I've been meaning to buy one for like, I, there's like a spot in my apartment. I, I like recently moved where I like feel like a, it would look perfect. And I keep meaning to buy one, but uh, I might wait and uh, see yeah. what the hundreds one looks like. Yeah. <laughs> cool. That's cool. So before we get going, uh, Bobby, we do a little segment called song of the week. We ask oh, every right. guest um, for a song, something they're listening to, something they're enjoying. Um, we added oh, to a my. playlist. This season's is called, in all caps, pair of kings, the Ocho. If you'd like to go and listen to it, as we are on our eighth season. Uh, but Bobby, do you have a song that you'd like to add to our playlist? Oh my God, this is so much pressure, and I wish I had thought about this before. I listened to very. Gotcha. Yeah, you really <laughs> did get get me because um, half of the music I listen to is very embarrassing. Like I listen to. No, that's a, good. Is it? Yeah, no. Embarrassing I, I how? Tried... What do you think is embarrassing? Now I'm like, curious. I listen to like I listen to like a lot of Taylor Swift. Like I'm looking. Oh, that's my... not a, that's yeah. cool now. Is that's that okay? Great. Yeah. Okay, that's that was like very boomer of me to assume that that would be frowned upon um, <laughs> on a cool podcast like yours. Um, I didn't like. I'm just the last song I picked on my like songs was like another Fred again song because I I work listening to a lot of Fred again. Is that, and that one's kind of boring. What do you think? Is that like? Cool yeah, enough. throw it on there. Okay. I, um, Danielle yeah. by Fred again. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I alternate trying to have like a cool, like obscure song and then putting on just like 
like the scene core shit I listened to in high school. So yeah, I love that we can be very self-effacing, facing, and like honest about that. But yeah, mm-hmm. I just Michael, what's uh, what's your song of the week? Yeah, what are you guys listening to? Uh, Split Ends by Bar Italia. Ooh, I have not. I was heard at that a, song. I I was at a friend's house and he was playing it. It's just like it's nice. It's like some like mellow, good good chill music. Great. Interesting. Saul. Uh, I've got Claire de Lune by Claude Debussy. Uh, I was listening to this last <laughs> night in bed at like one in the morning. I was up way, way too late. I had just finished reading. I try and read every night. Um, but then I went on my phone, which probably cancels out like the intellectual stimulation of reading a book. Yes. Um, and there was a like a 20 second clip of a very overweight kid on a trampoline doing like very impressive like <laughs> It's like a back handspring into a flip into a like front handspring, something like that. And it's too Claire de Lune. And I was like, now oh, I got to listen to this. This is a good song. Um, I really like Claude Debussy. Uh, I know it's a bit of yeah. a meme because his last name is Debussy. Yeah. Um, Debussy. Yeah. So what are you going to do? But uh, it's a great song. I don't know. It's very peaceful. Do you guys so. ever do books that you're reading? Uh, you know what? Give us a book. I can recommend the book I'm reading. What book are you yeah. reading? Uh, I'm reading, I believe it's called The Midrange Theory. Um, I have to look up who it's written by, um, but it's a really good book that goes, if you're sort of like into advanced statistics within sports, um, it's by Seth Partnow. Um, It goes very deep into the evolution of basketball and the evolution of advanced statistics within basketball and how we can sort of look back at players and say, Hey, you know, like Russell Westbrook's was it 2016 MVP season was pretty incredible statistics wise. But if you look at the, you know, difficulty of him getting those triple doubles, it was a lot lower than a lot of other players um, in the league itself. And James Harden, in my opinion, had a much more impressive season in 2016. But um, one thing that they really point out, especially with Russell Westbrook is even though he averaged a triple double, most of his rebounds came from very uncontested sort of low effort rebounds. Um, when Steven Adams was basically giving him those rebounds, he was on the thunder at the time. Um, and Steven Adams, if you look at him, he averaged something like five rebounds a game, which is really sort of anom- uh, anomalous for him, but he was like fighting for every single one. Cause every single free rebound would just go to Russell Westbrook. Um, and so it goes a little bit why into why Steven Adams is underpaid right now. He's not the focus of the book. It's more about statistics as a whole, but it's really good. It's well-written. There's a lot of like funny anecdotes. Um, I really like it. Awesome. I got it. Nice. I, I love all that. The money ball sports. statistics, <laughs> like sports. Yeah. It's fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Michael, are you reading anything? Uh, yeah, I, I'm. For some reason, a couple of months ago, I got like this strong urge to reread every Kurt Vonnegut book. Because I was like a really big Kurt Vonnegut fan in high school. Um, <laughs> that's so off character. <laughs> that's off character. Really? No, it's so on character. Oh, oh okay, yeah. I was yeah, gonna yeah. say like that yeah. is that is probably the most like predictable thing about me. Um, like if, I, if there's like a Michael action figure, he's holding a Vonnegut book. Yeah, he's literally. Like, He's like holding the slaughterhouse five. I I've been I've got up to Hocus Pocus, which is like the second to last book. Nice. Um, it kind of holds up. I I'm I'm reigniting my like love from when I was a when I was younger. So yeah, I think there's something. I love revisiting old books that I loved growing up. Sometimes they didn't age the way that I want them to, but then sometimes, oh, no. <laughs> sometimes you're like, yeah. wow, how did I read this when I was a kid? Like it's so complex, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, what are you remember, What are you reading uh, right now? I just was looking at it because I finished this recently. It's Don Bluth's memoir, which just came out a few months mm. ago. He's an mm. animator who left Disney, and then he made a lot of classic um, cartoons that we watch when, in my generation. But he has just like an amazing story of like following your dreams, even though he had he was like supposed to take over Disney, and he's just like you know I just want to do my own thing, and he. It's kind of like a struggle animator, like even till this day, it's very old, still trying to survive. And I start, I finished that one and I started a book called Status and Culture by W. David Marks. And it's just about like why we have social ranking, why that's important to us, and like how status works, why we buy the things we do to, to reflect status and um, what that brings our lives. And and it's just an interesting way to uh, considering especially like this if we're on the topic of fashion culture and whatnot why we do what we do mm, that's super nice. cool yeah yeah um before we get out of here bobby uh take you know uh, a minute a second however long you'd like the floor is yours um uh, before we get out of here you know let them oh, know wow. you know if they don't already know you're you know quite well known but let them know where they could find you um you know yeah things yeah. you're working on things you should be looking out for yeah, uh, you can just follow me at Bobby Hundreds everywhere. It's across my TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, all that. And then, um, but I'm really, really proud about my Substack. I think I'm going to be leaning really heavily into that this year. And mm. so, um, the older I get, I'm finding myself more and more identifying as a writer and that more than an artist or designer or a business person, anything like that. So, um, I'm really pouring my heart into that thing and. We'll see where it goes. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. Thank you so much to everybody for joining us on this episode of the Pair of Kings podcast. I am Saul Thompson. You can find me on Instagram at Saul Thompson. I'm joined this week by my wonderful co-host. Michael Smith. You can find me on Instagram at at underscore Smithstagram. And our guest, Bobby Hundreds. Um, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Pair of Kings Pod. You can email us with any business inquiries at pairofkingspod at gmail.com. Um, as always, everybody, this has been the pair of Kings podcast where we are bringing you business as usual. Tom Foolery is planned once a week, every week for the foreseeable future. Take care. Have a great Thursday. And as always, um, what, Oh, where would you like and like what you wear? I haven't done that one in a while. <laughs> Bye everyone. Bye guys. Submarine. The mighty brass would sink our class. We are a dying breed. The voices high and shift makes cry the diesel.